0: Improvements in body weight, fat mass, blood glucose levels, insulin levels, inflammation, symptoms of inflammatory conditions including mood disorders, induction of a beneficial cell cleanup process called autophagy, improvement in heart health, and more, have all been reported for what easy-to-adopt intervention? You may have guessed it, time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting. In today's episode of the People Scientist podcast, I will be doing an update episode on the scientific evidence from the last six months on this topic and more. are listening to The People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on nutrition, health, and medicine. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caliguri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello my People Scientist army and welcome back to the People Scientist podcast for episode 28. Today we are going to do an update episode on a topic that is very popular and has a significant amount of data to support its adoption and that is intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. In the last six months since I did my first episode on this topic, episode 4, there has been a lot of very well-designed studies published to further support this way of eating. If you haven't listened to episode 4 yet, please go back and give it a listen, because it provides a really great foundation to today's episode. Now, I need to preface this episode by saying that I've had a few people come up to me and say that their dietitian or physician said to them that there is no evidence for fasting to promote health, or that it's not healthy. And I can understand why they may say this, because intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating goes against the dogma that we were taught for so long. And that dogma was that we need to eat every 3-4 to four hours to maintain our metabolism. But so much strong evidence is showing benefit for waiting longer in between meals. The reality is, nutrition and physiology are evolving sciences, and we need to learn to change as the evidence comes out. So if your dietitian or physician has not come across any of the evidence yet, then please tell them about this podcast episode. But if your physician or dietitian says that fasting is dangerous or not appropriate specifically for you, then make sure to listen, as certain individuals may not respond well to this way of eating. For example, fasting is not recommended for children, the very frail or elderly, or those at risk for eating disorders, to name a few. But nevertheless, I am very excited to bring you the latest evidence because there is a lot of solid scientific evidence that has come out in the last six months about the benefits of fasting. So, as we always do, let's start off with some core takeaways. Scientists such as Benjamin Horn have published in the Journal of American Cardiology that in those who practice regular fasting of at least 24 hours, even just once a month, tended to have a lower risk for diabetes and heart disease versus non-fasters. Marinac in 2016 reported that regular overnight fasting of 13 or more hours was associated with a lower risk of breast cancer recurrence versus women who regularly fasted overnight for less than 13 hours. As reviewed by Matson in 2018 and Fond in 2013, Regular fasting may also hold benefit for dementia and depression. How might fasting have these beneficial effects though? Well, the studies that I am going to share with you today, published in the last 6 months, illustrate that regular fasting reduced inflammation, reduced symptoms of inflammatory conditions, induced a beneficial cellular cleanup process called autophagy, fasting enhanced metabolic flexibility and cellular resilience, normalized circadian metabolism, and improved markers of metabolic disease such as blood sugar, blood pressure, and stomach fat. So now let's jump into those details. There are different protocols for fasting. For example, we often hear two terms, either time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. Now, time-restricted eating specifically means that we would eat all of our calories within a shorter time frame. For example, clinical trials have looked at eating within a 6-9 to hour window every day. So the rest of the day, of 15-18 to hours, they would be fasting and would take in, for example, just water. So that is time-restricted eating. The other common term, as I said, is intermittent fasting. Now, there are many protocols published on this type of fasting. Alternate day fasting, I would say, is the most studied protocol of intermittent fasting lately. Alternate day fasting is what it sounds like. Every second day, someone will fast and have no calories. In some studies on the fasting date, participants were allowed to have water, black coffee, plain green tea, or flavored carbonated water and they would fast for approximately 36 hours every time. So let's say Monday was the eating day, and they finished eating, say, at 8 p.m. on Monday. Then Tuesday was their fasting day. And the next time the person would eat would be Wednesday at 8 a.m. On the eating days, the participants would not be restricted. But some alternate day fasting protocols will allow a small amount of food on the fasting day, such as 400 to 500 calories. And this would be a less strict protocol and more appropriate for some. Now, as a very brief recap of episode four, let me explain why fasting has become popular. As nutritionists or healthcare professionals, we were taught for so long that we need to eat every three to four hours to keep our metabolism going and to get more of our calories from carbohydrates. But the scientific evidence in the last decade has really supported quite the opposite. Let me put it this way. If we are used to eating every three to four hours and having some carbohydrates and protein every meal, then we are putting all of our eggs into one basket, so to speak. Meaning, our body will become very dependent on getting calories and carbohydrates regularly to fuel it. Then let's say once you need to fast for, for example, a blood test, or you get really busy at work and you don't have a chance to eat, then all of a sudden your body's like, hey, what's going on? You may feel dizzy, weak, irritable, nauseous, for example. And that is because the body rarely had to look to other sources to fuel it. So how about we teach our bodies to become more adaptable and resilient? That is what time-restricted eating and fasting does. This concept of metabolic flexibility and the benefits against disease, particularly for the brain, was reviewed very well by Mattson last year in the journal Nature Neuroscience. Fasting results in some adaptive changes to proteins in the body that will mobilize fat more quickly in order to produce energy more efficiently. Fasting also allows the body to produce more mitochondria, the powerhouses of our body, to generate more energy as well. This is very beneficial not only for our metabolic flexibility, but also for example in conditions such as dementia and Alzheimer's. These conditions are hallmarked by our brain and the neurons of our brain not being able to properly use glucose or sugar anymore, leading to less utilization of fuel for the brain and as a result, declines in cognition. So if we can teach our brain to use other sources of energy, such as ketones from fat, then this improves neuron function. And this was illustrated by Robello and colleagues in 2015 in a pilot study, where medium-chain triglyceride oil, which is rapidly converted into ketones in the body, improved cognition in those with early dementia. The second important highlight from the last episode is about the induction of autophagy. This process autophagy in our body is very important in order to eliminate damaged, malfunctioning, and mutated cells. These types of cells can lead to chronic disease such as cancer and improper functioning of organs and organ systems. But autophagy is only really ramped up in times of nutrient restriction such as in fasting, or with a low-carbohydrate and low-protein diet. Because during fasting, our body is saying, okay, what can we get rid of? What can we burn for energy? And autophagy results in selectively picking the damaged cells. So if we are eating every three to four hours with some carbs and protein, then this process of autophagy is never really fully turned on. As a result, there will be a buildup of malfunctioning damaged cells. And I will go into some evidence of this autophagy process in humans later on in this episode. So, let's jump into those recent clinical trials published in the last 6 months. The first trial that I'll talk about was published by Hutchinson and colleagues this past May in the journal Obesity. This trial aimed to understand if time-restricted eating in the earlier or later part of the day would influence the risk for diabetes because there is some talk that eating our meals earlier in the day may be more beneficial than later in the day. This trial was a small study that included 15 men with a BMI and waist circumference indicative of obesity. These 15 men did not have diabetes, but were considered at risk for diabetes. Now, they were asked to wear continuous blood glucose monitors for the trial. And this was a crossover trial, and the men ate either unrestricted or time-restricted to 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., or time-restricted to 12 p.m. to 9 p.m., so they ate within a 9-hour window. Now, the time-restricted eating, they followed for 7 days at a time. And the time-restricted eating, regardless of whether it was in the morning or evening, induced a beneficial response for fasting triglycerides, which would reduce the risk for heart disease and they also saw an improvement in their blood glucose levels in response to a meal by on average 10-15%. to The time-restricted eating in the earlier part of the day from 8am to 5pm seemed to be more beneficial specifically for fasting blood glucose, which improved by on average 8%. Whereas if the time-restricted eating was performed during the later part of the day, the effect seemed to be less powerful for fasting blood glucose as only seven men improved their average fasting blood glucose and the others either saw no improvement or a slight increase. Overall, from the study, it appears that simply changing the time window of eating to be within nine hours, regardless of the time of day, that it induced beneficial effects for fasting triglycerides and after-meal blood glucose levels. So not even changing the types of food that were eaten, but just the time frame that it was eaten resulted in some beneficial changes. And interestingly, these results were also replicated in a really well-designed on-site clinical trial by Sutton in 2018. In the journal Nutrients, Jamshad and colleagues earlier this year performed the first study of how time-restricted eating affects daily measurements of heart disease risk factors, selected hormones, and the expression of glycemic and circadian clock genes in humans. As an exploratory aim, they also investigated the effects on the expression of genes related to aging, autophagy, and oxidative stress. Eleven participants were enrolled in this study, which included seven men and four women, with the average age of 32 and an average BMI of 30, indicating possible obesity. They had normal fasting blood glucose levels, so they did not have diabetes. Now the participants were asked to eat between either 8am and 8pm, which acted as the control group, or between 8am and 2pm. They ate this way for 4 days and then crossed over to the other group after a 3-5 to week washout period. So this time-restricted eating window was smaller than the previous study. In this study, it was 6-hour time frame. Now, as we have seen in previous trials, just simply shortening the time frame of eating improved blood glucose levels. They saw a drop in blood glucose during sleep hours by 7 mg per deciliter. And over the 24-hour period, they saw a drop of 4 mg per deciliter in blood glucose. But what makes this study really interesting is that they measured the expression of genes that regulate glucose uptake, autophagy, inflammation, and longevity. Now, they did not see a change in many genes, but they did observe a beneficial increased expression of many. For example, they saw an increased expression of two genes that play a role in glucose uptake, AKT2 and IRS2. The scientists noted noticed that Time-restricted eating resulted in an increase in BDNF levels in the blood, which is a very beneficial effect because BDNF promotes survival of the neurons in our brain. Expression of BDNF is reduced in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and Huntington's disease. So the fact that BDNF increased here with time-restricted eating is beneficial. Time-restricted eating changed the level of many circadian rhythm genes, it increased the expression of the longevity genes sirt1 and mtor and the autophagy genes lc3a and atg12. This is really important because this is the first study to show in humans that even just time restricted eating in a 6 hour window induces autophagy that cellular cleanup process of the body. So in brief summary of this study time restricted eating from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. induced beneficial changes on blood glucose and increased the expression of genes responsible for that beneficial cellular cleanup process called autophagy and increased expression of genes necessary for neuron survival and longevity. But time-restricted eating may be even more beneficial in certain populations. Che and colleagues in the journal Cell Metabolism earlier this year highlighted how our circadian rhythm, our internal 24 hour biological clock, is closely linked to our ability to digest and metabolize food. In individuals whose circadian rhythm is out of rhythm, for example, because of genetics or because they are a shift worker with changing hours, their metabolism changes for the worse, unfortunately, and as a result, are at a higher risk for metabolic diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. But in this paper, in mice, who modeled an abnormal circadian rhythm, Che shows that a daily pattern of time-restricted eating can help normalize and maintain rhythms of genes responsible for nutrient metabolism and reduce the risk for chronic disease. So how did Che and colleagues show this? Well, the scientists provided a higher-fat diet that consisted mostly of lard, milk protein, maltodextrin, and sugar, so not the healthiest diets, because when this diet was fed to the mice and they had access to this food 24-7, the mice developed obesity, dyslipidemia, which is high levels of bad cholesterol and high fasting triglycerides, the mice developed glucose intolerance, which is a risk factor for diabetes, and the mice also developed low endurance levels. Interestingly, in contrast, when the mice were provided the exact same diet, but in a time-restricted window of 9 to 10 hours a day. These time-restricted mice still ate the same exact amount of food, the same amount of calories, and had the same activity level as the other group, but despite that, the time-restricted window of eating itself prevented the mice from developing obesity and negative metabolic conditions. Furthermore, the mice modeling the abnormal circadian rhythm when provided this poor diet 24-7 became even more obese than the normal mice. The great finding was that when these mice with an abnormal circadian rhythm were given the food in a time-restricted window of 9 to 10 hours a day, the mice did not become obese and did not develop metabolic disease. This is one of the first animal studies to provide support that perhaps in humans with abnormal circadian rhythms, for example in shift workers, that keeping to a time-restricted window of eating could be of great benefit. This is further supported by other studies. For example, Kosaka in 2007 in Cell Metabolism published that mice having access to a high-fat diet 24-7 resulted in negatively affected circadian rhythms and many key regulators of metabolism. But when the mice were switched to time-restricted eating, their circadian rhythm and metabolism was normalized. And this has been replicated many times over, for example, by Che in 2014, Hatori in 2012, and Sherman in 2012. They all reported that just switching to time-restricted eating without changing the diet itself significantly improved many measures of health for the mice. Mitchell and colleagues just this past January published a mouse study in the journal Cell Metabolism that aimed to investigate if time-restricted eating of even an unhealthy diet could change the survival and health of mice. They additionally looked to see if calorie restriction as well could play a role. So at 4 months of age, the mice were randomly divided into two diet groups and maintained on this diet until their natural death. The two diets were either a low-sugar or high-sugar unhealthy diet. Now within these two diets, mice either had access to as much food as they wanted 24-7, or they were fed the same amount but ate within 13-hour window every day, or the mice were given a 30% reduction in calories and time restricted to 3 hours per day. Fascinatingly, Mitchell and colleagues showed that what the mice ate, like their diet composition, did not alter the survival or health of the mice. They illustrated that the time frame that the mice ate was more important for their longevity, survival length, and health. Eating the same amount of food but within a shorter time frame resulted in an 11% increase in survival length versus the 24-7 food access group. Interestingly, a 30% calorie restriction as well as the time-restricted eating window saw an even greater improvement of survival at 28%. Overall, their results highlight the importance of incorporating fasting time into a daily routine as a potential practical strategy for health promotion. Increasing the fasting time may provide benefits similar to calorie restriction without the need to necessarily dramatically reduce the amount of calories, which could be more attractive for people so that was really quite fascinating again proving that just eating the same food but within a shorter time frame could have benefits for longevity in mice anyway but now let's look at some clinical trials investigating intermittent fasting and these studies in these studies they specifically looked at alternate day fasting gable in the journal obesity investigated in 43 individuals with insulin resistance, a risk factor for diabetes, if restricting calories every day or alternate day fasting would be better for weight loss and measures of health over 12 months. There was also a control group that was instructed to keep their eating and exercise the same for one year. So in this specific alternate day fasting protocol, the participants would eat 25% of their calorie needs at lunch on their fasting day. Then the next day, they would eat 125% of their calorie needs over three meals. So they technically did not fast on their fasting days. They still ate a small amount of food. Now, the calorie restriction group ate every single day and was unrestricted for time frame, but they had a reduction in their calorie intake. Now, after one year, both groups lost weight. The fasting group saw an 8% reduction in body weight, and the calorie restriction groups saw a 6% reduction in body weight. But there were additional benefits to the alternate day fasting protocol. These participants exhibited a greater improvement in their insulin levels and insulin sensitivity with alternate day fasting. So this way of eating seems to induce beneficial changes to reduce the risk for diabetes and does so even more powerfully than daily calorie restriction. Stekovich and colleagues earlier this month took the alternate day fasting study even further and looked at far more measures of health. They published in the journal Cell Metabolism just this month some results of alternate day fasting in 60 people. Their aim was to investigate the effects of alternate day fasting on measures of physiology, cardiovascular health, fat mass, muscle mass, bone mass, and the immune system in healthy, non-obese individuals. In this study, the control group consisted of individuals on no particular diet, and they were asked to maintain their current eating habits throughout the study. In the alternate day fasting group for this particular protocol, participants were asked to fast every second day for 36 hours. So if they ate last at 8pm on Monday, then they would fast until Wednesday at 8am, for example. On their fasting days, they were to have zero calories, so this is a more restrictive protocol for alternate day fasting than the other one published. The participants were not allowed diet sodas or quote-unquote calorie-free foods. The study participants were only allowed to consume water, flavored carbonated water, unsweetened black or green tea, or black plain coffee on fasting days. On their eating days, they were unrestricted. The scientists asked the participants to eat like this for four weeks. On average, this way of eating reduced their calorie intake by 37%. So this meant, for example, if someone needs 2,000 calories a day, on their fasting day they had zero calories, and on their eating day, even though they were unrestricted, they would take in, on average, 2,500 calories. So it is not as though they were binging and eating an enormous amount of food on their eating days. If you are the type of person to binge and lose control on your eating days, you are either restricting yourself too much and you need to restrict yourself less, or this way of eating may just not be for you. But I will speak to that more later on in the episode. In this study by Stekovich and colleagues, alternate day fasting was shown to be safe and beneficial in healthy, non-obese individuals. Alternate day fasting induced a weight loss of 4.5% from their original weight in four weeks, of which 62% of that weight was fat loss. Alternate day fasting also improved their heart and blood vessel health measures, such as an improvement in systolic blood pressure by 6 millimeters of mercury, mean arterial blood pressure improvements, And also improved pulse velocity, pulse wave velocity by 3%, which is an indication of the elasticity of our arteries. This meant that their Framingham heart disease risk score decreased by 1.4 points, which was a very beneficial improvement. Alternate day fasting also reduced fat mass, particularly in the stomach area, improved their ratio of fat to muscle and increased ketone production, their ability to use fat for energy, even on the non-fasting days, which was interesting. On the fasting days, the pro-aging amino acid methionine was periodically depleted. That is a good indicator for longevity. The scientists also observed a reduction of an age-associated inflammatory marker, as well as a reduction in the bad LDL cholesterol. The scientists also did an extensive analysis of the participants' plasma metabolome and observed a lot of adaptations to fat transport and metabolism in order to make the body more metabolically flexible. For example, the most significant change with the fasting protocol for four weeks was that the polyunsaturated fatty acid metabolism in the blood increased by six-fold in the fasting versus non-fasting individuals. So, In the plasma metabolome analysis, they really showed that metabolic adaptation and the increased in metabolic flexibility. Importantly, the scientists followed another group that had been practicing alternate day fasting for more than six months and noted that long-term alternate day fasting did not impair immune function or bone health, and no adverse effects occurred even greater than six months. Lastly, the most recent paper published on fasting was published just earlier this month from some of my colleagues here at Mount Sinai. It was published in the journal Cell by Jordan and colleagues. They aim to understand the impact of fasting on inflammation in both rodents and humans. This was a massive study with tons of experiments and really truly a fantastic study and it was published in one of the top journals in the world. So I'm not going to go into too much detail because there's so many results, but I'm going to give you a very brief overview. But if anyone wants to know the details of the studies, then feel free to message me on social media. Overall, Jordan and colleagues noted a very beneficial effect of fasting on measures of inflammation in both rodents and humans. But at the same time, fasting did not impair the proper functioning of the immune system as they still observed monocyte emergency mobilization during an acute infectious inflammation and tissue repair. Their study revealed that the calories we consume and our liver energy sensors really dictate the blood and tissue immune response. And as a result, there's really a clear link between diet and when we eat and inflammation. One of the most interesting findings to me from this study was that Jordan and colleagues observed the impact of carbohydrate metabolism on inflammation. Now, what specifically increased inflammation, surprisingly, is a process called glycolysis. Now, glycolysis is a process in our body used to break down glucose from sugars and carbohydrates to turn it into energy. Now, when the scientists inhibited the process of glycolysis, the monocyte number, an indication of immunity and inflammation, reduced. And Guo in 2012 previously highlighted the fact that during fasting, glycolysis is reduced. So in short, reducing carbohydrate intake or fasting may reduce inflammation by reducing monocyte number. In individuals with chronic inflammatory conditions such as arthritis, asthma, diabetes, heart disease, and more, the immune system is overactive, leading to high levels of inflammation. Specifically, individuals living with chronic inflammatory conditions may have high levels of molecules called monocytes. So the investigators were asked if fasting would reduce some markers of the immune system and inflammation in healthy individuals. So the investigators asked a group of 12 healthy normal weight men and women to provide blood samples 3 hours after eating, and after a short fast of 19 hours. The scientists noted that in the participants' blood, just a 19-hour fast reduced molecules that stimulate the immune system in inflammatory processes, indicating a beneficial effect. Specifically, the scientists saw a reduction in circulating monocytes including both CD14 and CD16, Interestingly, in individuals with low baseline monocyte numbers, fasting did not decrease monocyte numbers below the physiologic normal range, indicating that it is safe in individuals. Now, I want to supplement this study by Jordan and colleagues with just a few clinical trials looking at fasting and inflammatory disorders. For example, Johnson in 2007 reported in a small pilot study of nine people that alternate day fasting in individuals living with asthma significantly improved many markers of inflammation, induced weight loss, reduced their asthma-related symptoms, and improved their peak expiratory flow. Now in the study on their fasting day, they were allowed to eat a small amount of food that was less than 20% of their calorie needs. So if their requirement was 2,000 calories a day, they were allowed 400 calories on their fasting day. It would be suggested to eat either protein or fat for these calories on the fasting day, not carbohydrates, as breaking down carbohydrates by the process of glycolysis would disrupt the anti-inflammatory benefits shown by Jordan and colleagues this month in the journal Cell. In 2009, Muller reviewed a number of clinical trials that illustrated that fasting followed by a plant-based diet was very beneficial in reducing inflammation and symptoms of inflammation for patients living with inflammatory, the inflammatory condition rheumatoid arthritis. Tavakoli in 2008 investigated the impact of Ramadan fasting in patients with inflammatory bowel disease such as Crohn's and colitis. Now Ramadan fasting is a religious practice where individuals fast during the daylight hours for four weeks. The scientists noted that after Ramadan, the men with colitis had an improvement in their colitis symptom score from 3.5 to 1.7. The women improved as well, but not as significantly. Their score improved from 2.5 to 2. So there are clinical trials that are in support of fasting for inflammatory conditions. But I also want to make mention to mood disorders. Fond in 2013 nicely reviewed that fasting may have benefit in mood disorders such as depression. If you remember back in episode 25 and in episode 7, I discussed at length how high levels of inflammation can put us at risk for depression and depressive-like feelings. So then it makes sense if fasting has an anti-inflammatory effect that it may help with symptoms of depression. Now, last thing I want to cover are, are there any risks or negative effects to fasting or time-restricted eating? Well, as with everything, there are some things to keep in mind. For example, earlier this year in the journal Pediatric Research, Who and colleagues aimed to investigate in rodents if time-restricted eating would be safe and healthy in juvenile mice. And that is mice that are mimicking childhood, essentially. So at 5 to 8 weeks of age after weaning, the mice were restricted to eating regular chow for 8 hours a day, where the control group had access 24 hours a day. Now the mice remained on this eating protocol for 4 weeks. Afterward, the mice were considered of adult age and had access to food again for 24 hours a day. The mice that were previously time-restricted during childhood tended to have a higher body weight as an adult, higher blood glucose levels, smaller pancreatic islets, which is a risk factor for diabetes, fatty liver disease, thickening walls of the aorta, which is a risk factor for high blood pressure and heart disease, delayed sexual development, increased T-regulatory cells, which means less suppression of the immune system or a higher immune response, and an unhealthy gut microbiome. So overall, at least in this mouse study, it appears that time-restricted eating should not be practiced in childhood. Secondly, this is something I have not heard any of the recent researchers mention, and that is how fasting or time-restricted eating may have the potential to lead to binge eating disorder. And I think this is a reason why some practitioners are wary of fasting. Binge eating disorder may present as someone feeling like they have lost control over their eating and they consume a very large amount of food within a short time frame, likely within two hours. Then very negative feelings of guilt and shame follow. This is more likely to happen if someone restricts themselves too much. So if you try intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating and you are feeling this way, then please either try restricting yourself less For example, try the time-restricted eating pattern of eating in a 9-hour window, which seems to be the least restrictive protocol tested that still has benefit. The alternate-day fasting protocol may just be too restrictive for some people, particularly if they are just starting out with fasting. So my suggestion is to start slowly, perhaps start with an 11-hour window of eating every day even, and start to cut down from there. If you still feel like you have signs of binge eating disorder, then... This way of eating, the intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, may just not be for you. And that is okay. This way of eating is not necessarily for everyone. Third, if someone is fasting, taking in adequate nutrients for your health is really important because now obviously there are days going on without taking in any nutrients. So on the days that you do eat, please make sure that you're eating a healthy well-balanced diet rich in vitamins, minerals, and omega-3 fatty acids, so that you do not become deficient in any of these key nutrients. One of my listeners asked if they could take a supplement while fasting, like a vitamin-mineral supplement. Now, I have not read that supplements negatively affect fasting. And because, in fact, many protocols still allow a small amount of calories on fasting days— I would say that taking a vitamin and mineral supplement while fasting is okay. Just make sure that the supplement does not contain sugar, as some of them do. Lastly, the need for electrolytes becomes important if people are fasting for more than 18 hours or are also combining time-restricted eating with a low-carb or ketogenic diet. So if you are fasting for a long period of time, you will lose a lot of salt and water, and we need these salt ions, for example, sodium, potassium, and magnesium for the cells and the neurons in our brain to function properly, You know, for us to have proper energy levels and mental alertness. So please look into a calorie-free electrolyte supplement with some sodium, potassium, and magnesium if you are going to be doing prolonged fasting days. Okay, so that is a wrap, my people scientist army, on this update episode on time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting. Many beneficial effects have been observed. For example, in the intervention clinical trials, reductions in inflammation and symptoms of chronic inflammatory conditions have been noted, improvements in mood, induction of that beneficial cellular cleanup process called autophagy, Increased metabolic adaptability and flexibility, increased genes for longevity, improved measures of heart health, and reduced risk factors for diabetes have all been observed. Observational studies show that fasting is associated with a reduced onset of diabetes, heart disease, and reduces the risk of breast cancer recurrence. Animal studies show even further benefit for survival and longevity. Remember, there are different protocols for fasting, and all show some benefit. There's time-restricted eating, where you eat every day within a smaller time frame, or intermittent fasting, such as alternate day fasting, where you fast every second day by either eating no calories, but consuming just water, black coffee, plain black tea, plain green tea, or flavored carbonated water. Or even some alternate day fasting protocols allow 400 to 500 calories on fasting days. And I've even heard of some protocols where people may fast for 36 to 72 hours once a month. But remember, fasting is not for everyone, particularly may not be appropriate for children, the very elderly or frail, or those at risk for binge eating disorder. Remember to please eat well on your eating days and to take electrolytes if extended fasts are followed. If you have any follow-up questions, please feel free to message me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. My handles will be in the description box to this episode. Remember, talk to your dietitian or physician before making any changes to your diet. If they haven't heard of the latest science on fasting, then make sure to tell them about this episode so that they can gain more knowledge and be empowered because of it. I hope you all have a super healthy week, And I look forward to meeting you back here next week, the same time and the same place on the People Scientist podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.